exploiting a politician's death for war, and neoliberal hatred of national banking behind today's disasters. Coming up on this week's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 18th of March, 2022. I'm Robert Barwick, and I'm joined today by Citizens Party founder and leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. You've been in front of the camera a lot lately. Oh, we are. It's an election <laughs> coming up too, Robbie. So we've got to put our got to be out there. Got to be out there. Put our ideas forward. All right. Um, we had a candidates event last night, Robbie. You know, where we had uh, a selection of candidates talking about the transformation of agriculture and, and rural centres. How we would go about yep. it. It's on YouTube now. People should watch that. It was a very I thought a lively debate with lots of questions coming from the audience. And it's the first of our themed candidates Q&As. The next one is going to be in two weeks' time, and it's going to be on cleaning out financial corruption in Australia. And it's going to feature the great Denise Braley, um, who has been a warrior against financial corruption for 20 years. Yeah, that's um, live 31st of March on yes. our YouTube channel. We really want, there's a lot of financial victims out there. Spread the word. Let's get a lot of people to tune in. Um, but onto the show, Craig. The first item we're going to be discussing uh, is a rather delicate one. It's the kerfuffle that it's erupted, um, or the soap opera, the political soap opera, following the untimely death of Labor Senator Kimberly Kitching. And we have some views about what it's being used for. Mm. Um, the second is we're still uh, scraping over the, the bones of the flood disaster in northern New South Wales and Queensland and contrasting what can be done, what we know can be done to the dysfunctionality of our system, which means nothing's done. That's right. Right? And we're going to tell you where it comes from. Um, and you, you need to know where it comes from because that's where we've got to go back to to undo this. We've got to get in the, the DeLorean and go back to the past <laughs> to, right. to change it. I must congratulate you, Robbie, and... Uh, and, and Elisa for the last new Australian Alert Service, which people really need to read. I mean, we can't do justice no. to what we're going to cover today. The articles in this, this publication this last week have been absolutely crucial for anyone that's serious about knowing what the actual truth... When I say truth, I don't mean that from a propaganda point of view. I mean we always document what we put yep. in writing and we have it all backed up so people don't have to believe us. All they have to do is look read the articles and look at the sources. A lot of very in-depth work goes into it. A lot it. of work. All right, well, let's, um, let's get to that uh, in a minute. But first, exploiting a politician's death for war. And as I said, Craig, this is a delicate um, subject. But we have, we have views, and I'm going to go through those views. Um, uh, and we, we weren't going to say anything. And the reason we weren't going to say anything is because um, for those who are long-term followers of our show, uh, this was the untimely death of Senator Kimberly Kitching. Everyone's aware of it. There's a, there's a, there's a big uh, soap opera out there now about it. That's why we're going to talk about it, because we weren't going to, because we did spend the last uh, two years uh, fighting her very hard on the things that she was pushing in Parliament, and we do not resolve from that at all. And I'm going to go through some of those things, um, not... Uh, I would have been just as happy not to talk about it, Craig. But um, there's a cert there's an element of trying to ex people trying to exploit her death to push this pre-existing agenda, and we're going to state uh, correct the record and state the facts as we know them to be. Um, the, the 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 soap opera part is this term, "mean girls," mm. right? Kimberly Kitching was bullied by these mean girls in the Labor Party. Now, there's one element which is just superficial. A, super, a, a superficial interpretation of what's going on is, you know, the two political parties engage in tit-for-tat, right? So um, the Liberals, uh, they, like, they, they think that Labor weaponises the treatment of women issue, right? Um, and so they're, they're hitting back. I oh, see you've mistreated a woman, woman as well, and it's women who've mistreated a woman, right? So that's the superficial soap opera part of it. Um, if it was just that, we wouldn't be saying anything, mm. right? But it's not just that. I did want to make one comment, though, about this question of bullying, because um, bullying does happen, but you know, in pol politics is a, is a nasty business. 
and especially among the major parties. That's why I, the, more I, the more I know the major parties, the more I'm glad I'm not in them, right? <laughs> We're in the Citizens Party. And in our party, we can yell and scream at each other as well, um, but we love each other, we resolve the problem, we get on with it, we don't have factions. Uh, these two major parties don't stand for any principles, so they're riven by factions. It's all about vested interests and who's, who's got a, a foothold in one faction of the party to get their agenda forward. And they hate each other. Well, you make this point about the Greens, Robbie. Now, we have, a, we have some of the most violent disagreements. When I say violent, I mean profound disagreements with the philosophy of the Greens. Sure. However, what we do like about the Greens is they have a policy and they stick to it. They and you know what it is. You know what it is. They don't vary from what they actually say. So, therefore, you can have a fight about what they say on the, on the exactly. issues about what's come up. They know they, we know they're not lying. They know we're not lying. And that doesn't mean that we support the Greens. No, but, it, what it, but, what it, but it, what it does mean, Craig, if you at least have that respect of well, being opponents... Yes, which is the basis, Robbie, of actual real dialogue where you can respect the, the opposite view and then you come to some sort of a common Because you can ground. find common ground in anything. Yes. And let me tell you, not, not to make this an ad for the Greens, we want your vote, we want your vote in this election, <laughs> but the Greens have some very good uh, policies on banking. Yes. Right and, and social policies as well. Right? And when it, exactly, and when it, but when it comes to we have a, the reason we talk about banking all the time is because unless we clean out the financial corruption from which all other corruption um, flows, we'll never get anywhere. Yeah, right. That's why we talk about a national bank. People will say, "Oh, you guys only yeah. talk about finance and national bank." Without a national bank that can stand as a bulwark against the corruption, everything we've got with the private banking system now, like it was done during the war with Curtin shift to the Commonwealth Bank, unless we have a publicly owned uh, emitter of credit, which is publicly owned, is run and owned by the people, then you have no protections against anything anywhere in this economy or society. Yes. And that's a pretty broad statement to make, but it, it came and up we'll in our... And we'll come back to that. Yeah. We'll come back to that in a minute, but we're just restating there that, you know, there, there is common ground we've found with a lot of parties. The pro the, in fact, most parties actually, Craig, support a form of national banking, the ones that don't are the two major parties. Yeah, that's right. And like I said, they've lost their principles and so they have these fights. But that's not what's going on. If it was just a soap opera, like I said, um, we wouldn't be doing anything about it. I did want to contrast this question of bullying, though, to the fact to what Christine Holgate experienced that no politician has experienced the equivalent of when she was, as, a, as someone who's just there as a chief executive, doing a damn good job for the people of Australia... She was stripped bare psychologically in front of the whole country by the Prime Minister. And unfortunately, the person who gave the Prime Minister the ammunition to do that was Kimberly Kitching, who knowing, this, this is why we've, we've, one of the reasons we spent two years uh, fighting her, knowing that the watches were rewards two years earlier for a, for a, a deal that saved Australia Post, saved the licensed post offices and saved regional banking in Australia, she chose, like major party politicians do, she's not unique in this area, she chose to, to um, uh, turn that, spin that into something uh, nasty, right, that then set off a chain reaction that is still playing out in Australia Post today, right? And we were the ones who, took, who uniquely took up the fight against that and that led to an inquiry. Um, the other reason we opposed uh, Kimberly Kitching, Craig, was her... Uh, her antagonism, her hostility towards China, in which, again, she's not on her own. She's part of a group in the parliament, or she was, um, and we will still oppose that group called the Wolverines. Um, they're calling Kimberly patriotic. I take exception to that term, what, what the Wolverines call patriotism. It's actually loyal, loyalty not to this country but to the United States and the United Kingdom. It's written all over everything they do and say. They do not believe Australia should have an independent foreign policy. And what, they, what this group did, this anti-China group, is they took control, they hijacked our foreign policy on behalf of neoconservatives in the United Kingdom and the United States and turned us into this very sudden hostility towards China, which is damaging Australia's exporters. China is our biggest trading partner. Um, and this has been uh, something that has been a shocking shift in Australia dictated by overseas, and this handful of politicians did that. Now, um, and why, we're take, why I'm prepared to talk about this, despite the fact that Kimberly Kitching died a, a week ago, is because the, that grouping is exploiting this death to continue to push that agenda in a very sinister way. And that's what I want to call out 
we need to call out today. And I want to name the, the grouping. So the, the reporting people have heard that has led to a lot of attention on Penny Wong, Christina Keneally and Katie Gallagher as Labor's mean girls. And we don't like Labor at all. We, we don't particularly like these politicians. But um, uh, that's not why we're talking about this. The reporting is coming from the Australian newspaper, Murdoch's The Australian newspaper, Sherry Markson, and her main source is Michael Danby. And I want to say what we know about those two. So Sherry, this Wolverine group in Parliament, which includes Andrew Hastie, James Patterson, Erica Betts, etc., hard most of them are hard right liberals who, for some reason, were friends with um, Kimberly Kitching. This Wolverine group has been assisted by a handful of people in the media. Mm. And I won't go through them all, but it's people like uh, Chris, Chris Ullman, uh, Andrew Green, Nick McKenzie, we've talked about on the show before, and Sherry Markson. And Sherry Markson, I think, is a, um, let me be blunt, a gutter trawler. Who, her, who, she's a muckraker. This is her, she, she practices the worst kind of journalism. And what she has done in the last two years is take her particularly nasty craft and used it to do all things antagonistic and, and, and deliberately lying spin against China. One example we'll put, it, we'll put on the screen, and people may not get straight away what this, the significance of this, but I want to appeal to someone who may be a One Nation supporter from years ago. Because years in the 90s, when Pauline Hanson first started, Craig, you remember this, there's a yeah. publication that Michael Danby used to edit called the Australia-Israel Review, and they got a hold of Pauline Hanson's membership list Right, and they published it on the front page of their magazine. And right. at yep. the time, it was very shocking. This is about ninety seven, ninety eight. It was very shocking because people thought this is this is a way to politically intimidate people for having different different beliefs, different political beliefs. Right? Isn't this like the Nazis? I remember that was the the, the discussion at the time. Um, well, look what Sherry Markson did in twenty twenty to. Chinese academics at Australian universities. Now, you'll see there's two white guys on that list. But what, hap- what this was, the Trump administration had started this witch hunt, this McCarthyite witch hunt in America, which they called the Department of Justice called the China Project. Mm-hmm. And they were looking at any Chinese academic in American universities and looking for evidence that they were spies. And they ruined hundreds of them, their lives. But earlier this year, um, well, yeah, the year's not very old. No. This year, the Attorney General of the United States concluded that that project, which terrorised Chinese academics, people are just, they're just scientists working in labs, helping develop new technologies in universities, in America, and the Americans benefit from their research, right? And suddenly they're being called spies for China. The Department of Justice concluded, we found no evidence of anything. Right? This was the, they basically admitted this was the biggest beat-up of all time. And what Cherry Markson was trying to do in 2020 there, on behalf of these neocons in the Trump administration, is target Australian Chinese academics um, on the same spurious grounds, and it terrorised them. Well, I mean, the day that came out, I called. I thought, I can't call any of these white, these, these Chinese, Australian Chinese academics. Yeah. I'll call one of the white ones. <laughs> and one of the white ones was, is a... A, a man who actually grew up in Russia. And when I got him on the phone, because he's not Chinese, he was less intimidated, he said, look, this is like what Stalin did in the 30s. And he told me how two of the academics identified on the front page of that paper were scared to come into work that day. And it was all a political beat-up. And that's the woman, Sherry Markson, who's now saying that three Labor politicians are mean girls. Sorry, Sherry, you are the definition of low down and mean in Australia. So cut the sanctimonious crap, right? Let's, let's cut through that for one. All this stuff about, oh, look how... They don't believe a word of this. This is just pure propaganda for the public. So what are they actually trying to do? Well, what they're trying to do is um, uh, weaponize why they supported... What, what they were working with, with uh, Kimberly Kitching on. And the one thing I want to highlight, Craig, is the Magnitsky Act. Now, people will be hearing this term. The Magnitsky Act is something that, are they saying, oh, look look how great Kimberly Kitching's work was. She gave us the Magnitsky Act with which we can now sanction ru- these Russians, these evil Russians, right? And she did. And she was working with Michael Danby on the question of the Magnitsky Act. Michael Danby preceded her in Parliament and he had tried to get this Magnitsky Act up 
and then Kimberly Kitching took over from him to get the Magnitsky Act up, right? Um, this act is based on a fraud, an absolute fraud. The entire story behind this act is a made-up lie by a tax-dodging billionaire who is a front for one of the, the most crooked banks in the world, Hong Kong Shanghai Banking Corporation, who started off his career working for another crooked guy named um, Robert Maxwell, the father of Ghislaine Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein's girlfriend, right? That's who Bill Browder is. And his story behind the, the, the death of his supposed lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, which is the base of this Magnitsky Act, is all rubbish. And it's you, just look all over the internet. You'll see how his story has changed repeatedly. We're just going to play one little clip to, to illustrate this, though, because... The, the, the story's changed so often, you know he's lying, and therefore when he testified to the committee that, that Kimberly Kitching set up in 2020 on the Magnitsky Act, his testimony was deliberately misleading of our parliament. And it can be double-checked in a heartbeat, mm. right? And everyone knows that, but everyone's in on ushering this thing through, and I'll explain in a minute. But just this, this is one example. Well, before I give the example, let me just... Here's, the, here's some of his basic claims that are wrong. He said... Uh, Sergei Magnitsky was his lawyer who bravely exposed Russian tax fraud and got imprisoned and beaten to death. That's, that's the main claim that he's given all around the world to get these acts of parliament passed. Actually, Browder's long-standing accountant was Sergei Magnitsky, who assisted Browder in tax evasion. Hmm. I interviewed for our show legendary American uh, investigative journalist Lucy Commissar, who confronted Bill Browder in, two, in Moscow in the year 2000, long before 2007 when this happened, because she'd traced his tax evasion to there. And when she attended this event, they were handing out documentation to the people who were attending this spruiking event, um, promoting the law firm Mossack Fonseca, which is the star of the Panama Papers, right? Um, that's what he was doing. Magnitsky was his account on helping him exploit the, the, uh, the Russian uh, tax system. Um, and he went, he did, Browder fled the country, Magnitsky did go to prison, he did die in prison from pancreatitis and neglect. You can't let the Russian system off the hook for neglect because uh, they did neglect to give him the adequate care, but there was no beating him to death, etc. All, all that's been proven to be absolutely untrue. But what happened was John McCain took up this story to get a Magnitsky Act passed in America, and it's since been passed by all the Five Eyes countries. And the whole purpose of the Magnitsky Act is when these horrible human rights abuses happen in other countries, we will sanction the, the, the officials responsible for it. Except when the, Amer Craig, when the American Magnitsky Act passed, um, the first group of officials sanctioned were the Russian tax officials who were hunting Browder for his tax evasion. Yeah, and down so, here they didn't even want to use the name Magnitsky Act, Robbie. They changed it to something a bit more innocuous. Because well, exactly. There's a whole drama about that. Yeah. About that. But I think we had made a big stink about it. Um, uh, what we discovered, well, first of all, I'll just let me just play the clip now, which is just a, a little clip that shows what Browder says to the parliament that Magnitsky was um, the first person to be posthumously charged ever in Russia. And then the second part of the clip so he, Browder said that in 2020. The second part of the clip is a deposition he's giving under oath in 2015 in a separate case. And it's, there's, there's hours of this testimony online. And everything he says in that deposition contradicts everything he's ever said to politicians all around the world. So under oath, he has to, um, he's, he's forced to, to confront the truth of it. And circled the wagons. Um, and Vladimir Putin personally got involved in the cover-up of the murder of Sergei Magnitsky. He exonerated every single official who was involved. The Russian government gave state honors and promotions to some of the people who were most complicit. And in the most shocking miscarriage of justice, three years after murdering Sergei Magnitsky, the Russian government put him on trial in the first ever trial against a dead man in the history of Russia. It became obvious to me through this process that we were not going to get justice for Sergei Magnitsky in Russia and we needed to get justice outside of Russia. So this is an English translation along with the Russian in the back. Uh, judgment in the name of the Russian Federation. Um, and if you go to the end of it, uh, it convicts you of tax evasion, correct? Yes. 
and you have said many times that uh, Mr. Magnitsky was uh, convicted posthumously. You've said that? Yes. And on the first page, it appears that it's dismissed against Mr. Magnitsky, correct? No. Under paragraph 4 of Article 24 of the Code of Criminal Procedure of the Russian Federation. Do you see that? Yes. So he wasn't convicted posthumously, right? You were wrong about that. No. Sentence only refers to you, correct? I see my name here. William Felix Browder found guilty of committed two crimes, and then it goes on, right? Correct. And there's nothing about Mr. Magnitsky being convicted of anything, correct? I'm not a Russian criminal lawyer, so I couldn't um, make a judgment about this. Uh. All right. Now, where this gets nasty, Craig, is we looked into this when the when uh, first down uh, Danby and then Kitching put up this this uh, Magnitsky Act, and what we saw is this was being used to target China, mm. whereas in, in America it was it was really used to target Russia. In Australia, it was going to be used to um, target China, and what it does is really nasty. Because, um, well, let me explain it this way. Right now, and I'll, I'll play a clip on this in a minute. Right now, Vladimir Putin is Hitler. He's a monster. He's murdering babies and all this kind of stuff. And, and you're being, that's being pumped out of the media and you're all supposed to accept it. Well, before Vladimir Putin did this, most of what Australians were hearing was about China. And they're hearing China's got a million people locked up. Some people saying China's killing a million Uyghurs. China's doing live organ harvesting. China's a brutal dictatorship and, and they're, they're absolute monsters. That's what, that's what you're supposed to believe about China, right? And what that kind of... Um, and then when you, accept, when you accept those claims, then the Magnitsky Act allows governments like ours without evidence. This is the worst part, without any evidence. They don't have to prove it in a court of law. But without evidence, they hit, they hit those people with sanctions. And so imagine a scenario like we've just had with with Russia and like we're going to be heading into with China where we're on the road to war but you want to stop it. You hope there's people on either side that are looking at every diplomatic alternative to war, right? If one side has been so demonised and sanctioned to death by the other side, where's the goodwill for any diplomacy to actually work, right? Right? Our, our side convinces themselves that these people are just absolute monsters, right? And they've sanctioned to death, etc. They go into those meetings, and the meetings are already completely antagonistic. Mm. This is the poison of a Magnitsky Act, right? We sanctimoniously sanction people all around the world without evidence, and it destroys the chance for, for um, diplomacy, and that's where we're going. Um, that's what, that, you know, the, the people who are pushing for us to confront China push for this law to demand, to give us the tools to do it or, or lay the foundation for that. Um, what's coming out of these articles, Craig, about uh, Penny Wong, is that she resisted this. Yeah. When you brush it all aside, Michael Danby's complaint, and uh, he claims Kimberly Kitchen's complaint, it probably was true, is that Penny Wong resisted this agenda. Now, let me be clear. She's not, in resisting this agenda... She, she was clear that she saw this would damage our relationship with China as it was intended to. Now, that's not a pro-Chinese position and nobody should dare turn this into something because she has an Asian name and an Asian face, right? There's a certain amount of dog whistling here to do that as well. That's not a pro-China position. That's a pro-Australian industry position. Our whole industry and economy depends on that trade relationship with China, right? So she saw that. I don't know if Penny Wong was aware of it or not, though. But she wasn't just opposing Kitching and Danby. She was effectively opposing the United States, the United Kingdom, and the Five Eyes who were demanding we do this. Right? That's what has come out of this. She was reluctant to go along with an, with an order from out of Australia, Australia must pass this law, until she eventually caved and went along with it. Um, that's, a, that's an element of uh, ability or willingness to be somewhat independent, which I think is good. But here's the problem. 
Uh, right now, Labor is well ahead in the polls because our Prime Minister is an absolute jerk and the whole country can see that. As things stand right now, unless some other miracle or you know, April surprise is pulled out, Labor's going to win. Penny Wong is on track to be the next Foreign Minister of Australia. Mm. And if you're the, the Anglo-American establishment who expects Australia to be your lapdog, you do not want anyone as Australia's Foreign Minister who may not be totally in lockstep with your agenda. This is, Robin, people say, well, why on earth would these people want to be attacking China, right? Well, they're part of the institution of the Western you know, oligarchical you know, banking financial elite. And we talk about this a lot. There's the same people that run our banking system, right? The Western system is crumbling. It's got an enormous amount of debt. You know, derivatives, the whole financial system is teetering on the brink. And, you know, President Putin's warned that the sanctions are going to backfire and yep. bring down the petrodollar and all the th things the West relies upon because the, it, has, it, it is so uh, bankrupt is the only term you could use. So what you see with the development of China in the last 20 years, in the last 10 years in particular, you've seen China lift people out of poverty, 400, 500, 600 million you know, that's to be conservative. They've built infrastructure, you know, 20, 30,000 kilometres of high-speed rail. We've got nothing in this country. It improves people's daily lives. Exactly. And you see the same with Putin in Russia and what he's been able to do over the last 20 years and the fact that he stood up to the West. Now, they hate that, right? So they've got to protect their system, which means you've got to, they've got to make sure that there's not an opposition there to the Western system, Western financial system. And that's why this is, this is not just about you know, uh, uh, China per se. It's about an entire global order, the so-called New World Economic Order that was put into place 40 years ago, or tried to be put into place 40 years ago, and real resistance from Russia and China for a new order that is based upon the principles that our organisation supports of real support for the common good and for the general welfare. And the proof is there in China with what it's been doing with people in poverty. And then you th just think for a second, Robbie, just think about the way that Morrison's treated the flood victims. Of course. Treated Christine Holgate, you know, used the whole uh, mortgage bubble, the, the inflated mortgage bubbles on, on housing, that f housing prices and so forth, in order to prop up a failing economy. We've moved from a productive economy into a services-based financial economy where most of our focus is on how to loot the physical economy. So we shut down industries for the purposes of making a quick buck and when you turn around and say no we need infrastructure the first question is how do you fund it because that's premised on this idea we've got to make a profit first and foremost where as we've said very often on this show and others profit is not measured in money it's measured in the increase of physical economic output that's both in infrastructure and real goods production so if you're not producing something right and you're you're making a profit from the looting what's already there, that's not profit, that is degeneration and it's con you know, contracting the economy big time and that, that is not a never-ending never process. So if you're an Australian or an American, you say to yourself, has our economy, has my life improved in the last 25 years? And the answer has to be no. No. But, if you're, a, but if, you're a, if you're someone in China, the answer is, oh, yes, it has improved a lot. And as you know, if you go back far enough to the 90s, in, from, from where Russia was in the 90s, it's improved a lot. The very policies that actually when the, 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 you know, the Soviet Union broke up, the immediate policies brought into Russia were the ones, the same policies that destroyed us by the same institution, the Mont Pelerin Society, economic rationalism, free trade, privatisation, wholesale sell-off of assets, to private interests is where the oligarchs come to, by the way, from Russia. Wasn't Putin making these guys? It was the West that made yeah, these we, huge we, we created We them. created these guys. So this also, is to illustrate what you're saying, Craig, we have this map on the front page of our alert this week because, and this is why Australia gets so much attention from the Anglo-Americans, because we're not the majority of the world anymore, if we ever were. This is the Anglosphere. This, this, this yellow, these countries in yellow are the ones who sanctioned Russia. What that shows you is most of the world didn't. And those, right. that most of the world are also the ones that are doing deals with China on the Belt and Road because they want infrastructure and they want economic development as well. And before, you, and it's not a debt trap, and we can, get, we can do a whole show on that one day, but look up um, 
Deborah Broutigam, B-R-A-U-T-I-G-A-M, on YouTube and watch every damn video she's ever done from John Hopkins University. It's absolutely not a debt trap. It's, right. it's real infrastructure improving lives. Well, and that, that's the divide right there in the world. What I find, Rob, is hilarious. Look at that huge country called the United Kingdom <laughs> and ca- compare it to that puny little country called the USSR or the, the uh, sorry, the Russia. Yeah, Russia. It used, to, used to be Up to date, right? Yeah, up to date, yeah. Look at Russia versus Great Britain. I mean, huge country, Great Britain. So where does it have to derive its power? Solely through the manipulation of, through propaganda of people in order to make sure they don't understand what the geopolitics of this entire fight is about. And we've said more things about that and we'll yep. say more in the future. But, I mean, Australia is part of that as well. We're a puny population of 25 million people, thereabouts, compared to the world, yet we think we have the ability to punch above our weight. And you look at China with 1.2 million people with actual real economic development policies expanding their, the general wealth and the common good, and it's a joke. And the people who want to run our countries as plutocracies where we are constantly subservient to the banks who get away with literally with murder and America is controlled by, from Wall Street and the British are controlled from the city of London and our banks run the show in Australia, our Prime Minister is totally in their pocket. The, the people who want to keep that system which is crumbling and are, attacking, are attacking the countries. Because what's what's and we've got, you know, what's China's secret to its economic success? It uses the power of state banks to fund this um, industrial development, yeah, right? National banks. Now, so um, I'm glad you. I'm glad you sort of. I mean, this is important context. You know, there's a to, to remind people of why we raise these subjects. But um, I want to leave the kitchen side of the story there, Craig, because you know that's just what we're saying is you are seeing what a foreign interference operation right now, weaponizing Kimberly Kitchen's untimely death to try and intimidate the Labor Party, if there's any tendency in the Labor Party when they take power to put a brake on this rapid drive to hostility to China, right? The people who may do it are being targeted over this. And we're calling it out now. But um, just to buttress it, I want to I give an example of you know, why you have to... When, when you hear the claims that are, that are the basis for these things, like a Magnitsky Act, etc., I've come to conclude, Craig, especially when it comes to foreign policy, expect everything, expect everything to be a lie, right? And the one I want to, we want to take issue with quickly, it'll take a little while, but is the question now about the lying about Nazis in Ukraine. Um, and you're being told, because Vladimir Putin said, we're going to denazify Ukraine, there's Nazis in Ukraine. We're being told suddenly, that's all rubbish. And let me just play this clip from uh, under investigation this week on Channel Nine. Very short, but it's 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 um it's just it was such propaganda. And former Australian ambassador Tony Kevin went on there, who's a Putin supporter, and he was defending Putin. And they just slaughtered him with the editing, etc. But I just want to play this clip just to ex- express the propaganda about Putin being Hitler and the Nazis in Ukraine. Just play the clip. It appears that he has. Uh, the same lack of morals and scruples that Hitler had in the Second World War. I think that Adolf Hitler and Vladimir Putin are cut from the same cloth. I think it's a dream of of nationalism and greater empire in the same way that Adolf Hitler had a dream of nationalism and greater empire. It's a hatred of of another people. Uh, In this case, the Ukrainians. Hitler had a hatred of the Jews. Putin is the man, after all, who believes that the president of Ukraine is a Nazi. The president of Ukraine is of Jewish origin and a lot of his family were murdered in the Holocaust. Can I give you a couple of metaphors? Once Australia's ambassador to Poland, Tony Kevin has become sympathetic to Vladimir Putin and his war. If New Zealand behaved towards us the way in which the Nazi gangs who've effectively taken control of Ukraine have been behaving towards Russia, we'd have to do something about it. In fact, extreme right-wing parties are a political fringe in Ukraine, winning just 2% of the vote in the last elections. Now, Craig, so so, yeah, Putin is Hitler, he's Hitler, he's Hitler. And just the way they're saying it, and poor old Tony's trying to provide some context. um, But I want to point this out. They said there's 2.5% of of, uh, of far-right parties got votes in the election. That's not as small as they're trying to pretend it is. 
That's roughly one nation's vote in Australia. Now, that's not, I'm not, that is not to, I'm not comparing one nation far-right parties in Ukraine. Other people would probably do that, but we're, we're definitely not. I'm just talking about the size of the vote. Is the one nation vote in Australia significant? I'd say it's significant, right? Yeah, it, it is quite significant. Yes. And you're talking about, you know, the actual, the neo-Nazi vote in Australia, the people who do this, mm. that wouldn't even register as a blip on the radar, right? right. But if One Nation supporters were people who did this, yes. then you would be alarmed. And that is the truth about Ukraine. Now, so they're trying to say now, oh, no, there's no Nazis in Ukraine. Well, let, without trying to argue the point, let's just go through Western media coverage. And I'm going to do this as quickly as possible to, to um, make the point. Okay, so Newsweek, of all the serious media, for some reason in the last few weeks, Newsweek magazine has actually given some coverage of saying, okay, well, there is a problem, right? So um, th this, is, this is Newsweek from uh, the 22nd of, oh, sorry, the, the 2nd of uh, March. Uh, and the headline is, as Ukraine rallies nation to defend from Russia, far right joins the fight. Just a couple of quotes. These experts have long raised the alarm about a growing far-right and even neo-Nazi community operating in paramilitary groups and within the Ukrainian armed forces themselves. Um, one of the experts, they cite Kuzmenko, Alexei, investigative journalist Alexei Kuzmenko. In fact, the National Corps now talks about a designated, de sorry, dedicated Azov Territorial Defence Detachment in Kiev, Kuzmenko said. At the same time, the National Guard of Ukraine's Azov Regiment, which is their not one of the most notorious Nazi regiments, which is also the military wing of the Azov movement, plays an important role in the defence of the city of Mariupol. And I wanted to cite that quote because Mariupol is a city in the, in, the, um, uh, in the news at the moment, and the Russians are saying, what you're seeing from Mariupol is being blamed on us. That's what these Nazis are doing, right? And you're supposed to believe, no, you're making that up. The Nazis don't exist. Newsweek says the Nazis exist, and they're running Mariupol, right? Um, just jumped from there. I wanted to, then they jumped to quote an, an American who used to work at the American embassy in Ukraine who said, look, he, as an American, he had to say, oh, Vladimir Putin is using this for propaganda. But then he said, but there is a problem and I've been saying so for a long time. And here's his quote, Western allies could have isolated the far right, but blew it by delegitimizing all this as conspiracy theories and propaganda, even after decades of documented covert and overt support, Brunson said. It's not just war over Ukraine, but war over history and retellings of World War II. That's an American in Newsweek saying that this is a big problem in Ukraine. Now, a funny thing happened um, on International Women's Day because NATO, which is the problem entity, put out this picture of... Um, uh, Ukrainian women fighting Russia, representing International Women's Day. And then someone noticed, well, the headline says, NATO says it didn't notice Ukraine soldiers' apparently apparent Nazi symbol in tweet. And on her chest, she had this Nazi symbol, which is called the Black Sun. And, oh, uh, sorry, we didn't notice that. And other people have been pointing out, well, every damn photo you guys are taking at the moment that the Western media is taking of Ukraine's military Everyone's wearing these Nazi symbols. You're saying it's not a problem. Why can't you take a photo without a damn Nazi symbol in it? <laughs> right? This is, this is a, a, um, uh, quite a big problem. Now, what is that Nazi symbol? Well, just, just to bring it home, Craig, this week was the third anniversary of the Christchurch massacre. Mm. And in 2019, we'll put the article up on the screen here, the ABC noted that the Nazi symbol that the shooter wore was the same black sun which is very popular in Ukraine, in the Ukraine military. How popular? Well, their journalists wrote this in 2019. Quote, I see it on Azov's patches, being worn by soldiers and even used as decoration in one of their social centres. I saw it last night as several hundred Azov movement members, many of them teenagers, marched through the Ukrainian capital. I lost count of how many black sun patches and tattoos I saw. Mm. Right? Well, let's see it. Let's... I might run out of steam to do this, Craig, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to run through now just headlines from Western media. We'll flash them on the screen as I read them. This is France 24, video, a video link, but the headline is enough. Video, Kiev's far-right groups refuse to disarm, and that was from 2014. This is Channel 4 News in the UK, 4, 5 March 2014. How the far-right took top posts 
in Ukraine's power vacuum. And they stayed there. And far right, they're meaning that's a, that's a nice way of saying Nazis. This is a BBC report, 16 July 2014. Ukraine conflict, white power warrior from Sweden. It's a profile of the, the Nazis from Sweden coming in to join the Nazis from Ukraine. Uh, uh, this is Eurasia Net News, August 6, 2014. Ukraine, far right fighters from Europe, fight for Ukraine. This one here is... Uh, uh, is this Deutsche Welle? Oh, no, this is NBC. Sorry, NBC News. German TV shows Nazi, Nazi symbols on helmets of Ukraine soldiers. This one is BBC again, 13 December 2014. Ukraine underplays role of far right in conflict. This one here is from Politico in uh, 2014, I believe. Uh, a bloody divorce, sorry, Ukraine's far-right menace. A bloody divorce between the Ukrainian government and the country's ultranationalist groups could be in the offing. Well, um, those groups stayed in power. Uh, this one's The Guardian in uh, 2018. Neo-Nazi groups recruit Britons to fight in Ukraine. Uh, this one is uh, a Jewish public. This is the Times of Israel in Israel. This is in 2018, 30th of April 2018. Nazi symbols salutes on display at Ukrainian Nationalist March. Uh, forward, sorry, Forward, which is a Jewish publication, 2018. Violent anti-Semitism is gripping Ukraine and the government is standing idly by. Deutsche Welle in 2018. New glory to Ukraine army chant invokes nationalist past. Glory to Ukraine is Slava Ukraini. Every politician in the West is repeating that Nazi chant from World War II now. Slava Ukraini. That's what glory, that means glory to Ukraine. It's, an, it's, it's from the Nazi past. Um, uh, this, one, this one's the Atlantic Council, which are the people who run NATO. This is in 2018. Now deny, NATO's denying there's Nazis. This is their own publication in 2018. Ukraine's got a real problem with far-right violence, brackets, and no, RT, Russia Today, did not write this headline. Right? <laughs> Uh, this, this again is the Times of Israel, 27 December 2018. Ukraine celebrates Nazi collaborator, bans book critical of pogroms leader. And they talked about how Stepan Bandera's birthday, the guy who was the, the big champion of the Nazis in World War II, has been named a national holiday. Oh, the, the same, sorry, Haaretz did the same day. That's another Jewish mainstream newspaper. Ukraine designates national holiday to commemorate Nazi collaborator. Um, this one is from The Nation in the United States. Neo-Nazis and the far right are on the march in Ukraine, February 22, 2019. This is from Bellingcat, which is a propaganda outlet normally, just attacking everything Russia. Um, yes, this is August 9, 2019. Yes, it's still okay to call Ukraine C-14 neo-Nazi, and C-14 is one of their, their Nazi groups. Um, Times of Israel again, 2021, January 2021. Hundreds march in Ukraine, an annual tribute to Nazi collaborator. And then Canadian television news, CTV news. Uh, last October, October 2021, 20th of October, far-right extremists in Ukrainian military bragged about Canadian training, report says. And we ran a clip of that actually a few weeks ago in our show. Well, Rob, that's pretty comprehensive, but I want to just point, one, point out one thing. In 2014, we published our new citizen yes. on exactly this subject. We, we distributed 85,000 copies of this throughout Canberra to try and get the word out about the fact that there was a neo-Nazi coup taking place in Ukraine and it was aimed at Russia. And that you know, this, this, the, the, the eastward expansion of NATO, which the West said wasn't going to happen, was a potential trigger for war. Now, Putin has made it very clear on the 24th of February on his speech that the purposes of, of why he had to go into Ukraine, which no one likes war, we don't support ideas. War is hell, war. that's why you avert war it. it. But beforehand. the point is, you had, first of all, the idea, what he said, and this is what he said, he wants to demilitarise Ukraine, he wants to denazify Ukraine, right? And he wants to make sure that Ukraine is neutral. In other words, it's not being used as a forward base for NATO, either chemical and biological weapons, which he's made it very clear, yep. or other military installations. And he also opposes the, uh, the... And the red line was also drawn when you know Ukraine came out just recently and says, oh, we want to become nuclear, a nuclear power. 
So this was a direct threat against Russia's sovereignty, which the West has ignored. It was it's brought upon because of this neo-Nazi infiltration of the government going back to the coup in 2014, which the West has actually supported. You know, we reported in Victoria and yeah. back in 2014, bragged about how the US government had spent $5 billion supporting the, these insurgents in order to overthrow an elected government in Ukraine. And what did we hear about that? We heard nothing. So this, this, this is an attack. What you see here from the bigger geopolitical picture I was talking about before, not just the attacks on China that we talk about all the time, but the, the, as, as President Putin has said himself, this is an attack on Russia so that we don't exist. It's to stop us from developing industrial. It's to stop our development full stop. They don't want a strong Russia. And so, Craig, the reason we've done this is because the public, and we played that clip of Putin being Hitler, the public is supposed to think, no, no, every word out of Putin's mouth is a lie. So we've just shown you that in Western media's own reporting, the Nazi issue is not a lie. And to bring it back to the Magnitsky Act and, and this, this uh, segment, the evil of, of a Magnitsky Act is if you, if you destroy the possibility for diplomacy, and what is diplomacy? It allows you to see the point the other side is making, look at it on its merits, and look for common ground you can build on to avert a war, right? Or end a war. In this case, the issue is going to be ending a war. And if it's going to end the war, you've got to, if, um, you got it. If you say Putin's Hitler, then we've got to go to World War III to stop him. But if you realise, no, there is a lot of claims that the Russians have said that are, that are true, this sort of thing proves it, right, then we need to be demanding our side stop backing that kind of brinkmanship that's going to take us to a greater war and back the resolution that's going to stop this as soon as possible. And the Magnitsky Act is designed to destroy that ability of even diplomacy happening. I don't know right? how it's going to happen, Robbie, in the sense of the absolute witch hunt that's on in, in any on any journalist's head in the established media, but go back to the Christine Holgate issue, right? Where initially, when their first story broke, people said, "Oh no, another one of these, the situations." You know, you know, CEOs yeah, yeah. rewarding fat cat blah, blah, CEO fat cat, blah, throwing blah, blah. around gold right, watches. and then some honest journos decided to look underneath it, and they get, "Holy hell, wow!" And they discovered the truth which was covered up and it was covered up right the way through. And then they spoke out that they were able to speak out in the major press at that time. And so we've got a huge number of articles about the, the actual story about what, what went on. But see, that's not happening at the present time. No, this is right. complete crocaganda, as we use in the, the Australian Citizens Party. All right. Um, now, this show has gone on for a while, Craig, but uh, we're going to persist. So stick with us because we just want to have a quick discussion now about the, the flood question. Um, uh, because this is, you know, we don't want, we don't want to ignore it. Um, neoliberal, the, what we call this segment, neoliberal hatred of national banking behind today's disasters. And essentially the flood update is the government's penny pinching in its response. And you, people are hearing that they've, you know, electorates in, in, in the same area as other electorates are not getting, some are, some are getting funded and some are. And this is, I mean, what is wrong with this government? Just you know, have a commitment to, to fix the problem on behalf of everybody. Um, we raised this point last week. You raised it again last night. But to capture the insanity of all this is the contrast between Australia and the Netherlands, mm. right? I, I thought of, here's, here's some, let me rattle off some sayings. A stitch in time saves nine. Yes. For want of a nail, the kingdom was lost. Prevention is better than the cure. These are sayings because they're common sense, and they're common sense that everyone has acknowledged for thousands of years. But in Australia, <laughs> we don't believe in it. We spend 97% of our flood-related spending on recovery and cleanup, and 3% on mitigation and prevention. Yep. Whereas the, the Dutch, because half their country is under sea level, they wouldn't exist if they didn't do the exact opposite. 97% on, on mitigation and prevention, and 3% on recovery and cleanup. What? How crazy are we? Um, Melissa Harrison has written an article in this uh, alert service, Craig. Um, she's highlighted some of the issues, specific issues, such as the fact that local councils shoulder more and more of the cost, but they don't have well, the ability to fund it. There's two issues here, Robert. First of all, local councils can only draw most of their revenue from two sources. One, from council rates. Yep. And secondly, they can try and borrow money, right, which puts them into debt. And more and more debt creates more and more interest payments and so forth. 
But the other problem is that if councils actually recognise the problem of the very poor reporting of flood zones, then property values would drop and therefore their rate revenue would drop. So just explain this. This is, this is, this is the biggest shock in Melissa's article. Yeah. Councils get these reports that tell them, okay, a one in a hundred year flood will flood this much of the area, of your town. Well, like what, a one in a five hundred year flood will flood this much, one in a thousand year but flood. It, people should not be confused about a one in a hundred. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean one flood every hundred years. Yeah. That means that there's a 1% chance, 1% chance yeah. that the flood levels will exceed the previous flood levels in that area. Yeah. Right? That's a very different idea. And, and the government, you know, has, has deliberately used the wrong interpretation of this to excuse their lack of action, right? Yeah. Just because it's a 1% chance, it's still a real chance. And that's why you can have three 100-year 100 100 floods in a row. It's got nothing to do with climate change or anything like that. That's just a way they use and, it. And other countries use different measures, which I found very interesting in Melissa's article. Was explained. I thought it was one area, one flood every hundred years, but no. The United Kingdom uses 025 percent of, uh, of or one in a five hundred year flood. Right, so there's a 0.2 percent chance of a flood level exceeding the previous flood level. But the Netherlands uses a 0.1 percent or one in a thousand year flood level. In other words, they designated their areas that will flood. As as yeah as one in a one point one percent. So why don't chance. we? Well, it turns out why don't we relates to everything that's wrong with our country because we have one engine of our economy, Craig, which is our property bubble. That's been the case for at least twenty years or more, right? And there is too much development on flood plains. Way it's overdeveloped on flood plains. The worst part though is the people buying the developments. Don't doing the about. developments, buying the development, don't know about the risk in many cases because a whole bunch of councils don't share the data they have. And the reason they don't share the data they have is they're afraid, the West Australian Local Government Association admitted this, they're afraid that if they do, the, the property values will go down and they will be sued for that damage yeah. of the, to the property values. And so better, better keep the property values up until a flood comes along and washes all the property values away yeah, anyway. That exposes the, the councils and are saying, because if they don't tell people what they already knew, they're liable for sitting on that information. Yeah. There's now, negligence here. Now, all these things, that, you know, let's just do this quickly. National banking, Craig, can fund the infrastructure and reconstruction we need, right? It's the government using its own banking capacity, like we said last week, it's got all the capacity in the world Long-term, low-interest loans, you know, it doesn't have to be done at commercial rates and everyone can afford it and you can, you can do those things. National insurance. The government could be a national insurer, right? Have a national insurance scheme that's not run for profit that'll allow, make insurance affordable for people, right? And the two combined, proper protection infrastructure and proper insurance can make many of these places habitable. So the one or two places you have to have a big question mark over, right? The, the relocation that might have to take place from them, that's done in a context as well, right? But you don't just rule out whole areas because, again, the Netherlands wouldn't exist. Um, but the two things we want to highlight, looking at this, and we'll do more next week, Treasurer, the Treasurer of Australia in 1979 was John Howard. It's the same year he appointed what's called the Campbell Committee to look into the financial system. as the financial system inquiry. Um, but in 79, he had a specific proposal. There was a specific proposal called for national disaster insurance the government would provide a national assurance scheme for financial for um, uh, natural disasters, right? And he put the kibosh on it. Now, I won't go through all this reasoning, but the reasoning was ideological mm. to the point where he even quoted in his paper, can in the idea, he quoted Herbert Spencer. Now, Herbert Spencer, if you're a philosopher, you might have heard of this guy. Herbert Spencer was the guy who invented what's become what's now known as social Darwinism before Darwin, <laughs> right? He came up with the term survival of the fittest. And in fact, his ideas influenced Darwin. You know, so how objective is Darwin's science? That's what you've got to ask. But anyway, this guy, Herbert Spencer, he said, no, 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 we need, it, it's, it's sort of, it was a, it, it's all tied up in eugenics, etc. You need a survival of the fittest society or else we'll, we'll get... Um, lax and flabby and whatever, and it's good when the, 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 the strong consume the weak and all this kind of stuff. That's who Herbert Spencer was, actually, right? Um, John Howard, showing his ideological stripes in 1979, chose to, to quote him in this paper, um, a policy information paper issued by the Treasurer, um, and then he said, look, the, partly my reason for doing this is because um, 
you know, we've got too much where government institutions help people out. We need to be moving away from that. There's a movement to move away from that, which we know because we documented this takeover of the Mont Pelerin Society of Australia. He said, I'm making this decision to encourage that movement. So 1979, he, didn't, he denies the establishment of a national disaster insurance scheme that could, have, that could be making sure today would, would have 40 years of resources in it, right? Pays people paying in, etc., and including the government, and be making sure today there's a there's a mechanism to handle these disasters. At the moment, Robbie, it's ad hoc as we see. The politicians like Scott Morrison even hold off on announcements of, of support in, in order to have photo opportunities. There's been criticism by the Productivity Committee about the short-sightedness of many many governments in the, in in dealing with these problems. Just in flood damage or potential for flood damage alone to various communities, you're looking at approximately exposure at a, worth $100 billion. That's just floods. Yep. Then you look at fires in people build, you know, in five ravaged areas. Then think about earthquakes or even tsunamis, right? So if you had a national insurance fund with, that had the funds in it to support all these different... Because you're not going to have a flood in every single area all, you know, at the same time. What that will also do is energise better policy from the point of view of councils having to expose what buildings are put into yes. the uh, uh, floodplains or being built in floodplains because then you've got a government institution that's saying, look, hang on, we have to look at the risk here for us paying out on these sorts of things. Therefore, local councils, you can't do this. But at the moment, because everything is ad hoc, everything is at your you know, caveat emptor. There's no national approach. In effect, yeah. the same idea... There's no national policy here. There's no national direction. And everything is left to local councils to, to deal with on an ad hoc basis. And when it happens, the support is always very slow from the feds. Yeah, you're on your own, basically. Effectively. This is the insanity of the current neoliberal system that we have now. And it's all coming down to, you know, you have to wear your own losses, in effect. And, 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 the, re and the nub of it is that pr the private banks, the private insurers don't want these national institutions because they want a monopoly on this area to maximise their profits and their power over the financial system. And Australians have to decide, is that principle more important than the welfare of my, me and my neighbours in a disaster, hmm. right? Whereas we need to be able to have a way to deal with this. And that's where the national interest has to come first. And that's why we say this. Just, just quickly, the, last week we talked about using the Reserve Bank. It's got all the capacity in the world. It could be lending now long-term low-interest loans to the local councils, to the state governments and the federal government for the reconstruction, right? So they can not do, they say, oh, let's just not do it on the cheap. We've got some real resources here. Let's, let's do the long-term stuff that'll, that'll avert more of this in the future. Um, uh, in 2014, Bob Catter put a bill into parliament for a what's called a reconstruction board at the Reserve Bank, which would be a special board whose job would be to, to do this, this sort of thing, right? And that led to an inquiry, uh, Craig, a Senate inquiry, and the Treasury made a submission to it. I wanted to read their quotes from the submission just quickly because they canned it completely, purely for ideological reasons. This is the quote. Direct lending via a government-owned development board is likely to reduce competition and innovation across the economy by crowding out private providers of credit. Mm -hmm. In other words, if we set up, if the Reserve Bank does this lending, the private banks will be crowded out. Sorry, they don't do this kind of lending anyway. This is, a, this is, this is garbage, but oh, boo-hoo the private banks. Um, then, then it claims this view is supported by overseas experience, which finds that the presence of state-owned banks generally hampers economic growth and distorts the financial system. Well, state-owned banks in, the United King, in, the, in, sorry, in China are driving the biggest boom in economic growth the world has literally ever seen. Sorry very much. It was the basis of, of Japan's post-war economic boom. And then later on, when they elaborate on, on this in the section under state-owned banks, what did they go back to? The Campbell Committee, which Howard set up the same year he kiboshed the National Disaster Insurance. This is what it said. The Campbell Committee inquiry into the financial system in 1981 identified the issue of competitive inequality. The government's too big and mean to those private banks. <laughs> Better privatise the Commonwealth Bank. It observed that the Government banks were growing faster than their private counterparts by competing unfairly. More broadly, the Campbell Committee was in favour of increasing the scope for market forces to determine the financial market outcome rather than increased participation of government-owned banks. Yep. And that's what led to the privatisation of the Commonwealth Bank and all state banking in Australia. 
right? And that's why we get 40 years later, where at this point we have no institutional ability to do the kind of investment we need. Yeah, thanks, John Howard. Thanks, John Howard. Um, and that's, that's, that was very insincere the way you just said it. Let me say sincerely, thanks, Craig, because yeah. we've run out of time. We will end it there. Like Craig said, get a copy of the, uh, the um, Australian Alert Service where all this is backed up. And uh, don't believe the propaganda, right? Look at our research and um, you'll see the kind of work that we, we put, we've put out for a long time to, to provide um, real truth on this stuff. And let's hope that we uh, can defeat these people who want war so we can settle things like what's happening in Ukraine. And we need people to like this program, Robbie. Share it oh, yeah. around. Yeah, I get, I get criticised for that. I'm the worst host for that. Like the program, share it, um, subscribe, and when you subscribe, ring the bell icon so that you can get notifications when new shows are up. All right, thanks, Craig. Yeah, thanks, thanks to the viewer. Me. Tune in next week for more of The Citizen's Report. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.